all this morning? Good. <laughs> There's a lot more people here than I actually expected. I thought this was a month of travelling, so it's, it's really nice to see everyone here together in January. Um, so today's topic is... It's unity. I'm just going to downright just say it. Um, and I'm actually going to split this up into four sections or four sermons. So the next one is in two weeks, so I'm hoping they are uh, closer together. It's only in two weeks because I'm not here next Sunday, but for the sake of continuity and us not forgetting what we've learned each and every single time, uh, hopefully I can do the next uh, three to four sermons on this same topic. Um, The way I actually came to this was I was chatting with a few people here in church and one person brought up uh, this idea of unity and we should talk about it. And at the time, I didn't really, I didn't really sink in. Um, not that I dismissed it, I heard it, but um, it, I didn't really think much of it at the time. And in my own personal time and thinking and reflecting and um, going through uh, scripture, this came across to me again and I went racing back to that person who actually said that um, so it definitely stuck in my mind and I decided that well I felt led to actually talk about this with us now I acknowledge that so much of scripture actually focuses on the idea of unity um, and the scripture that I'm focusing on is a massive chunk of scripture but I think Paul very much drives his point home. And I think uh, to cram it all in one sermon would be an injustice to the Scripture. Um, I feel like if we don't break it down, we won't have a deeper understanding of the text. Uh, We won't have a deeper understanding of the concepts that are portrayed in the text. Um, And therefore, it's harder to put into practice. The way I look at it is when we eat a massive meal very quickly, it, it's hard to digest it. But when we uh, pick it apart and we eat it and we chew it and we, um, you know, it tends to be better for our digestive systems. So in that sense, I want us to break this down and take our time with it and give it the respect that it deserves. I know you're all looking at that picture. I'll get to it. <laughs> um, but before we uh, go into the word... Let us just bow our heads in prayer one more time. Almighty God, we come before you and we refocus our minds to your word. We want to learn from your scripture, Father, because we believe this is a source of truth. We thank you that you have given us your scripture, that those who have written down your word have chosen to record what they have learned and what your spirit has taught them. I pray, Almighty God, that CLF learns from your word and that we can be a richer and a stronger community because of you. I thank you for all that you do for us, Father, for the grace that's given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray. Amen. So today we're only going to focus on um, verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16 but we'll get to that later on. Now, my goal for this sermon is that we, CLF, grow as one 
So when trials test us, that our bond remains strong. So what is this idea of unity? If you Google it, it's quite funny because it states the state of being united or joined as a whole. But I like the fact that they use the word united in the defining unity. It's very vague in my opinion. But the idea that stems from the Bible is being one body joined together by God himself. And what I mean by this is in the Old Testament, God sought to join his people in various ways. So he gives them laws and statutes to follow because sin starts to run rampant through, through them and it's causing divisions. But more so, it's causing divisions away from God. So he tries to unify them through his laws. And then he gives them instructions in Leviticus how to repent and how to come back to God and therefore be united with him in that sense through forgiveness of sins. And further than that, God makes covenants with his people. He's making promises to his people to join them together so they can hold on to what the living God has said and it makes it possible for them to have communion with him. Now, God is the one who unites us and he is the one who joins his people together. And it's not just about being joined together But the way I look at it is being grafted together. And that's why I have that picture up there. To illustrate what I mean by grafted together. So this is drawn by adults, by our young adults. And for me, I love that they have focused on the body, but what they have done is that they have the hands and the legs, that's still people. So people are grafted together in unity because of Christ. And then the idea of this oneness together, being grafted together, continues in the New Testament. And Jesus, in his prayer, in John 17, verse 20 to 23. Sorry, Steve, thanks. And this is what Jesus prays, prays. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their, through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, and I in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We see Jesus' vision here for his believers, for those who are going to follow him, that they may be one. And what binds them together is a close connection, dare I say even a deeper connection than just a close connection. Jesus prays that we will be one together. And why? So that those who see that know that they have been, um, that they can see God and Jesus in that. Now, we're going to read all of Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16. 
Um, if you want, you can either follow it up there or your own um, translations. I've got it in the NRSV. Now, just remember today, I'm going to quickly just talk about what's leading into this, but we're going to focus on two verses only. So let's read um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to, chapter, to verse 16. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean by that that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill, fill all things. The gifts he gave were some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about every wind of doctrine by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Now leading into Ephesians chapter 1 verse uh, to 16, Paul sees an alienated human, uh, humanity being reconciled a fractured humanity being united together. Now, Paul also sees a new society being formed. Now, this notion of new societies being formed, you know, when we look through history, it's, it's quite common. Um, I, I think about Karl Marx, who wrote The New Man and The New Society. He tenders the idea of communism and had a vision for, for a society where classes didn't exist anymore and he saw that coming through revolution. But his, he saw a problem of humanity as economic and one where if you remove the economic issues, equality is met. And there have been many in history that have wanted new societies. But Paul has a vision for a new society as well, whereby he saw the injustice in society far deeper than an economic one or economic structures. Paul saw everything stemming from Christ to be this new society. Through Jesus, God is creating a new humanity, recreating men and women for good works. 
we see this thinking in line with what God is doing with his people Israel in the Old Testament, whereby he was creating a new society amongst other nations to be set apart for him. God's vision of what society should look like. And then the same concept is happening here in the New Testament, where through Christ, a new society or community is set up to be set apart for God again. However, the difference now is that this new society consists of Jews and everybody else. We are all invited into this new society that's occurred through Christ. We see that societies are built on values uh, and ideologies. However, generally, they don't stand the test of time, in my opinion. We see civilizations crumble and be rebuilt again anew as the world continues to change. However, there's something about God's concepts that do stand the test of time when tested and measured still there and through Christ and in Christ we are nothing less than God's new society being created through him we are a family as well we are the family of God the father the body of Jesus Christ his son and we are more than anything the temple of a dwelling of the Holy Spirit the message of a church church's new community is really important for Christians to grasp with and understand. Today, more than anything in Western society, we need to be asking some very fundamental questions when it comes to church. Whether that's a controversial statement or not, I'm not sure, but that is definitely my opinion. And some of these questions that we need to ask is, what is the church's essential being? And what kind of churches are coming, coming into being and growing? And how then does that reflect who we are? How then does that reflect what we believe? How then does that show what we believe to those who witness what we do as a church? And not just the CLF. I'm talking far broader than this. However, we are a little church, but that doesn't diminish our greatness either in the body. And further than that is, we have control of what we do here. So Paul's vision is a new society which God is calling his people. And one that is manifestations of a new society is unity. What we need to be manifesting from what we have gained from Christ is that cohesion together, that graftedness with one another through the bond of his spirit, building each other up. Now let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians. I therefore... The prisoner in the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The language here is, it's very emotive uh, in, my, in my opinion. 
So Paul appeals to them to lead a life worthy of their calling. Uh, there are a lot of Jewish undertones here of the divine calling that, that, that Paul is saying. It's not just uh, from him, but he's saying from a divine calling, live a life that is worthy. God is calling his people to live a life that is worthy of its calling. And what does that mean? And what I like about Paul's leading into this uh, chunk of scripture is it kind of, for me, leaves it open and I get excited to see what's next, what's worthy of my calling. And then we look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So we have a few qualities here that contribute to unity that are worthy of of our calling. Now, when looking at a church, I feel like we sometimes worry too much about structures. But Paul here, he doesn't care about structure. He's focusing on the morality of the church. These are moral qualities that he's uh, asking them to live a life worthy of their calling. Paul sees morality of a church and people's connection with Christ far more important than any structure that we could ever put in place. Now, is structure wrong? No. But when it takes over our calling of the lives that we live, then that's an issue. So we as a church need to worry far less. And I'm talking about not just here, the greater church, about our structures and focus on the qualities that those around us witness. It is we as those who call themselves followers of the living God and who choose to manifest the qualities that witnesses can attribute to one that we follow. People see how we live and how we do church. And I rather them look at this is how they live and this is the qualities that they show far more than they do other things. So let's look into these qualities. I've got lowliness, but humility can be, uh, here it's actually the word is lowliness that Paul uses. And the Greeks never used this word for humility in the context of gaining actually approval. It was used to describe a submissive slave. It had really negative uh, connotations when used. And Paul uses this word, and I, forgive me once again, anyway, <laughs> it's a very long word. But the word that he uses, it actually means, what he's trying to uh, attribute to his readers is, it's lowliness of mind, the humble recognition of worth and value of other people. That was Paul's idea of humility. Seeing others' value, building up, seeing others as higher than yourselves. How essential is this to unity? Humility is so essential to unity as it promotes harmony. It's easy to get along with those that we like. But it's harder to get along with those that we obviously don't get along so easily with. Humility is actually a place to start. 
we look at gentleness, or the word here is meekness. Now, meekness can have a negative connotation to it as well. Because to be meek, you're not generally the loudest person and sometimes appear to be one with little influence in a larger group. I think a meek person, even in our society today, can sometimes be viewed as weak. However, Paul sees this, sees this a personal quality that believers in Christ should possess as it constitutes, as it contributes to the unity of the body. Jesus uses the idea of meekness in his Beatitudes in Matthew 5. The meek will inherit the earth. This is an important, this is an important attribute for a believer to have. And the word that Paul uses here is prautes. Much easier to say for me. The word here has nothing to do with weakness, however quite the opposite. It is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. In Galatians 5.23, meekness is associated with self-control. It's a condition of mind and a heart of gentleness. In 1 Peter 3.4, he shows meekness as a soothing disposition. Meekness is not occupied by the self. So we see it's a loneliness of mind. Then we go to patience, or, yeah, patience. And the word here is macrophimia, is pretty much long-suffering. The word is the quality of self-restraint. It's it's the self-restraint when provoked. It's the quality that does not surrender to circumstances under trial. However, when provoked, it shows restraint. How many times, well, at least I know uh, in my work, when people get pretty aggressive towards me, sometimes for good reason, but not buying into that and just being patient with that. And what it does, it promotes peace. And then all these things are coming together in love. Now, once again, that word for love is agape. We have heard this in so many sermons, whether it's here or out of here. It's, it's an overstated word. However, why shouldn't it be? When you understand its true meaning, it should be. We should be talking about this a lot. There's no such thing for me as overstating this even though I said it has been, but I'm always happy to hear it. Now, in the New Testament, the idea behind agape love is actually it's God's love towards his son. So Christian love has God as its primary object, a constant love that is not deterred by anything. It is constantly flowing. It's an ongoing love no matter what. For me, the deepness of this love comes from, one, this is the love that God shows to his son Christ. And then Paul says this love, or all these qualities are being built into this love for us to have with one another. That speaks of a very deep love that we should have between us. And that's not always easy. 
that hence why agape is from God. So here in Ephesians 4, we have verses 1 and 2 where we're looking at humility, meekness, patience leading into love. Now all these attributes flow perfectly into the next verse that we're not going to look in today. But what it flows into is peace. Now Paul very much focuses on peace amongst believers. The gospel is referred to as the gospel of peace. Peace is a characteristic of God. And it's a massive idea or concept or a a living thing that should be amongst us. Why then should there be peace between us? Well, I'll let you you mull that over. But peace must be a contributing factor to unity. For we won't have unity unless peace is part of the knitting together of, of us. So, as we conclude part one here, we see that God is creating a new society through Christ. We see that the structure of a church is not as important as the morals of the church or of what it portrays. What defines us will be how we act outwards and how we treat each other. This is what people look at. We see that peace is an essential quality of the church and it leads to harmony and unity. Now, putting into practice these attributes, it's not always easy. Change takes time. Sometimes these attributes come close, like easier to us than not. But it's also about asking our Father to teach us how to, how to do this amongst ourselves. And letting God's Spirit flow through us and teaching us how to be humble, meek, patient, and loving each other deeply. So, as I said in the beginning, my goal is for CLF to grow stronger together. And whatever our part is in the body, that we do it joyfully, but that we also remain together. And as we continue in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, I'm hoping this gives us some things to hold on to that we can use to achieve that. May the Lord bless his word. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, we come before you as a people who have joined together because of our love for you, Christ, but more so what you have done for us. I pray, Lord God, that this church can be meek, patient, humble, and bearing it with one another in love. I pray that your spirit continues to guide us and guide this temple that is your church, Lord. We thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your son. Amen.